We're going to review the main stories in the papers. We're joined by Martin Hayden, the chairman of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party and TD for Kildare South. Stephen Donnelly is the independent TD for Wicklow and Alison O'Connor, political columnist with the Irish Examiner. A very good morning to you all. Uh, we'll go through the front pages of the newspapers to begin with. Uh, the Sunday Independent, Bruton plans to dock teacher pay, ministers' hardline strike stance, school closures now inevitable, no decision to stop guard the pay. Uh, the government will dock the pay of thousands of teachers in a hardline response to the threat of industrial action by the country's biggest secondary teachers' union. I would have thought if you're on strike, automatically your pay is docked, but we'll talk to Richard Bruton about that later on and speak with our panel. A more controversial sub-story there. Minister now claims grandparents don't want childcare cash. Children's Minister Catherine Zappone has sparked a new controversy over the future of childcare by saying grandparents are insulted by the suggestion they should receive state support for caring for their grandchildren. Insulted mightn't be the word that some of them would use. Uh, vulture funds in fight with state over tax crackdown. That's the big story on the front of the Sunday Business Post. Government squares up to lobbying by funds. The government is preparing to ignore intense lobbying from the property industry and, sl- and slap special tax-avoiding vehicles with hefty bills, no matter where they were set up. Property funds that have been doing battle in recent weeks with the Department of Finance in an effort to ensure any changes will apply to companies established after reforms are introduced. The other story there, Harris faces fresh doctor's revolt in Port Leash Hospital. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, is facing a revolt from doctors in the Midlands where hospital consultants and medical groups have joined forces to stop plans to downgrade Portleash Hospital. So that story rearing its head again. The front of the Sunday Times, Fitzgerald lets slip names of whistleblowers. This is a remarkable story. The Justice Minister disclosed the identities of two Garda whistleblowers during a meeting with senior officers in the summer of 2015. The incident is said to have raised concerns in the Department of Justice as to whether Francis Fitzgerald understood her legal obligation to protect whistleblowers. Fitzgerald has refused to comment on the incident, but a spokesperson insisted she had at all times dealt with whistleblowers strictly in accordance with obligations under the Protected Disclosures Act of 2014. They also have a story about Catherine Zappone, but a different story it's that the minister who joined the repeal the 8th protest in Dublin last month is planning to vote against the AAA PBP motion to repeal the controversial ban on abortion next week. Sapone told constituents in Dublin South West that public support for abortion exists only in limited circumstances and the best approach to secure abortion rights is to allow the Citizens' Assembly complete its work, said same Assembly meeting for the first time yesterday. The Irish Mail on Sunday, uh, Cowan... I should have cut the drink, is their front page story. It's a story that's played out in a number of newspapers. It's excerpts uh, from a new book. Uh, Brian Cowan admits he should have moved to kill stories that gave a false impression that his socialising interfered with his work or even given up the drink for a while. The book is called Hell of the Gates. It's extracts from which appear in the Mail on Sunday today. Sees key figures in the Fianna Fáil Green Party bailout government reveal what happened at crucial points during a tumultuous period in Irish history and the front of the Sunday world beaten man killer stepdad Dave Mann suffers broken jaw in brutal prison shower attack is their front page there so lots to digest with our panel but the one story that stands out for me that actually didn't make the front of the Irish papers is in the front of the Sunday Times in the UK Boris my case for Britain to stay in Europe Alison O'Connor If you ever wanted an example of how politicians can be duplicitous, this is it. This is Boris Johnson, who 
two days before he came out in favour of leave, wrote two columns for his, the Daily Telegraph, for the paper he writes, um, and then he's decided to write one that if he was to stay and stay on the Remain side he said this is a market on our doorstep this is the single market ready for further exploitation by British firms the membership fee seems rather small for all that access so why are we determined to turn our back on it he also warned Brexit would cause an economic shock and could lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom at least he was prophetic in what he didn't publish I mean he was accurate in in, in in many ways we'd give him that I think you were being unfair to other politicians by comparing well, we've, uh, we've comparing two in studio them. they can defend you themselves know, I, in a minute I, I think that uh, that Boris is a law unto himself and uh, utterly all about himself and I also think that he's a treasonous individual actually in terms of what he has done on Brexit purely I think from from what you might describe as prag- pragmatic reasons um, and be it whether you're discussing Boris Johnson today or I think in time, uh, history will show he is someone who looks whose chief role in life is looking after number one. Which he clearly did because mm. he decided to back the other horse. I mean, exactly. the two politicians exactly. we have, Stephen Donnelly and Martin Hayden, gentlemen, defend your profession against the likes of Boris Johnson. Ah, good morning, Jonathan. I, I was in London when uh, Boris was mayor of London and actually did a did a bit of work with Boris Johnson, as it happens. Um, he's a really sharp guy. I know he comes across as a buffoon. He's, he's Oh, no, I don't think he's... The, I, I, yeah, I'm not he's, suggesting he's a buffoon. No, sure, I think I know he's very not. sharp. I think he's entirely selfish and self-interested. I, I think that's probably too harsh. Mm. I, I've seen him do a lot of good things um, for London when I was there. He's a sharp guy, and he, I, think, I think he did a lot of good. He managed to keep... The financial services very, very strong whilst beginning to spread the benefits of the additional cash around. All the ones who are now thinking about leaving London. No, exactly, exactly. That's why I was stunned when I heard. I remember seeing the the press conference where he came out and he he said he was going to go against it. He's such a large figure in the UK that my view is had he come out and said remain, which he absolutely should have done, the UK would not be leaving uh, the EU now. It was an extraordinary thing to do. I'm not. I'm. I'm surprised that he filed copy. That that was such a, an amateur mistake to make. But I'm. I'm not at all surprised to hear that he very clearly understood the damage of the EU uh, leaving. I. I to this day cannot understand why he did what he did. Well, it makes you, no I, sense. You. You occasionally take pen to paper, if that's the wrong analogy in this modern age. Uh, do, do you sometimes write alternative versions of your copy before you file them? No. No. Not at all. I, I think what you do end up doing is actually writing twelve hundred words that is going to be out there for everyone to read, and for your colleagues in Dáil Éireann to use against you if uh, <laughs> if they so wish. You really have to focus on what you're writing, and certainly what I, has happened to me on many occasions is I've sat down to write believing one position and by the end of the article have actually decided no, that was the wrong position because you have to do the Mm. research and you have to, as one of my old professors said to me, he said, you know, a smart argument is not one where you take a position and then Google a load of facts to back it up. It's the one where you actually try and break your own argument. So I can see that, but, but filing two completely different positions, no, it's a very strange thing to do. Martin, when you sit about to set your mind to a topic I mean presumably you weigh up the pros and cons uh, and you come down on one side or the other because that is your job as a politician not to sit on the fence although many gloriously do that in this country Uh, do we understand why Boris Johnson would have at least tried to convince himself of the argument No and I wouldn't be nearly as um, courteous to Boris Johnson now as Stephen has been because in 
in my mind, he is a larger than life character. So is Donald Trump. That's not necessarily a good thing to say about uh, somebody in and of itself. To me, it smacked at the time of somebody putting their own self-interest, um, their own political future. He wanted to be prime minister, I'm sure, and saw this as the best means of achieving that. Um, but it, on, the, on the broader scale, it points to me of the absolute irresponsibility that it was in the UK to have this referendum in the first place. It, it was um, it, it was David Cameron put in the next general election and you know his own party uh, trying to get unity there above the best interests of the country. And if ever there was an example, we know in this country that referendums are seldom fought on what they're about. They're fought on a whole myriad of other issues and this is a perfect example that Boris Johnson adopted a position that suited him. But doesn't and it show his absolute lack of moral fibre? I mean, as Stephen indeed. said, without doubt, he's exceptionally brave. Right. But that he would he would use that brightness to set forward these two opposing arguments and that he would ultimately go with whichever one I believe suited him or that he felt was best for his for political his experience. I would actually have more yeah. regard for the man if he in ignorance didn't predict all of the things that are now happening, the push for Scottish independence, the, the, we haven't seen Russia get stronger just yet, but it, it could well happen. Um, but, you know, the, the turmoil in the markets and, you know, we see the, the rhetoric come out of the Tory conference at present. This is still continuing. The UK hasn't got to the point yet where it realises the significance of this. And I just, I, I'm chairman of the European, um, been chairman of Fine Gael, we're part of the European People's Party and I've attended meetings out in Brussels with my counterparts from the other parties. And while it's not really in the news what the EU is saying, there's a very strong sense that when these negotiations start, it'll be 27 people on one side of the table one on the other mm-hmm. and all the compulsion will be on the UK to do a deal and there will be no sense that any deal should be cut for them. Which is a very unenviable position to start negotiations. There is one line uh, also in the Sunday Times article that uh, Johnson wanted to punch Michael Gove after he tried to apologise to him for knifing him on the morning of his leadership launch which I'd imagine is a, an understatement about how Boris Johnson might have felt on the day. Uh, let's talk about the teachers' strike. Uh, Bruton plans to dock teachers' pay Alison, I, again, I come back to the point that if you're on strike, you don't get paid anyway. So this is not revelationary. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Jonathan. It's exactly the traditional uh, way we, we would all even have learnt about strikes in school. You go on strike, you're, you're, pay, you're looking for more pay, but the result of going on strike and, and refusing to work is that your pay, your pay is docked. Um, there is obviously massive amount of coverage in, in, in today's papers uh, about, about the teacher strike. Um, I suppose it's um, for me a lot of it comes back to the unions are being quite clear on on where they stand um, and the union leadership I heard Jack O'Connor say the week before last that he believed of SIP2 Lansdowne Road should be renegotiated so they are showing their leadership I'm looking to see where is the government leadership on this there's a real sense of a runaway train now about IR issues you know be it bus drivers Gardaí teachers uh, Pascal Donahue who did mention this this commission that there that that is being set up but I mean I think that's where is that commission you know this all this stuff is happening and there's a massive momentum I think you see from some of the figures being being mentioned that um there's not a bad deal on offer at all no, within, well, the, within the, Lancet. There's some quite extraordinary well, the deal figures for the teachers and this is the bit yeah, I can't but get it my shows head around. the lack the extraordinary lack of reality really but I think that it, it also goes back to the Fine Gael campaign during the general election the message that they that they were sending to people be it about the USC the recovery 
um, th- that set that set up the scene, if you like, I believe, for what we're seeing now, and we are not seeing the political leadership to try and 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 rein that back well, in I, and I, and get a sense of reasonableness I, to I the argument. Aisha Handan has an article in the Sunday Independent today. She quotes from the famous song: "Imagine there's no session, recession. There's no recession. It's easy if you try." It looks like the trade unions have indeed done that, Stephen. I, I, to be honest, I cannot understand the ASDI strike. I do understand the Garda strike because it's about far more than pay. It's about the guards year after year after year just coming under more and more and more pressure and being treated with a lot of contempt. So I get the Garda strike. I don't get the teacher's strike. What the, the argument being put forth is they're going on strike because there is unequal pay for new entrants. And at the same time, they are rejecting the mechanism to get rid of unequal pay for new entrants. There's 22% on the table right now. If they signed up right now, 22% for those new teachers. Yeah. Now, new teachers, I was looking at the scales this morning. New teachers start on 31,000 and a bit. I think that would then go up to 33,000. They get a reinstatement of an extra four or 5,000 for having a degree. There's more money for having a HDIP. There's more money for having a master's degree. I don't think the scale goes up quickly enough, if you like. I think for a new entrant coming in, after one or two years earning 37, 38, 39,000 euro, I think that's a pretty good salary for a 22, 23 year old, quite frankly. Well, it was a lot more than I was earning. I'm, I, I'm not sure about the yeah, rest well, of the people I, around the table here. I started on, I mean, I I started on four, four, yeah. 14,000. But I, the, the issue, therefore, to me is not a new entrant salary. Any 22, 23 year old earning 38, 39,000, that's a lot of money. It does go up very slowly, though. So you find yourself mm-hmm. 10 years later when your friends in the in the private sector might be earning, you know, 50 percent more than that again. You've probably gone up only by only by ten grand. But there's so nine there's nine percent for that group as well. So it's not like they're getting nothing. They're getting nine percent under this there, deal. There's pay restoration, but therefore you have to ask yourself what's actually going on because we have teachers going on strike, notionally saying we're going on strike to get equal pay and we're turning down equal pay on on the other side by not doing that. So that makes absolutely no sense. So whatsoever. what is it then? I th- I don't know. You see, I I know I mean, what it is with the figures. guards. Like the, the the French are the absolute masters at strike, but even French teachers would blush at turning down these figures. You know, Martin. Let's let's ask you, with government opinion, what do you think is going on with the teachers? Well, I don't know. I think the most important point. If you're, by the way, if you're a teacher, five three one zero six for your text messages. Do tell us what's going on because we're a little befu- bemused and befuddled here. I, I think the most important point to, uh, to mention here is that it, we're not talking about all teachers. You know, the TUI and the INTO have agreed to Lansdowne Road, and they've they've taken up those hard measures. Um, they they sat in at the table and signs on their new entrants are now um, in line for for the pay restoration that's coming. And uh, Minister Richard Bruton has has expressed a willingness to extend the benefits uh, agreed with the TUI and the INTO to extend those to the ASTI uh, in the context of the union's cooperation with Lansdowne Road. And that agreement is worth one hundred and thirty five thousand euro. Uh, to a teacher over their entire career um, so you know there's a very simple point here government cannot allow those who have stepped outside of the Lansdowne Road Agreement to, to to get a win beyond I talk about the wins for Brexit and that EU can't allow the UK to get wins or you'll see the unravelling of, of all of Europe But the government have done a very poor job of managing expectations um, 
I, I don't know. We've we've held a very strong line in, mm. in in the seventy days of negotiations after the election. Um, one of the key points in the supply and confidence agreement with Finnafall, it's only a seven or eight page document. One of the key points of that was getting Finnafall to agree with us. Um, the Lansdowne Road uh, was sacrosanct, and they did that. Well, the, the so other side of it is, and, and Martin Frawley has this in the Sunday Times today, is that Pascal Donoghue who got his sums wrong in the budget on Tuesday. Uh, he said there was two hundred and ninety million that recovered the cost mm. of Lansdowne Road, but uh, he neglected to include the three hundred and seventy million that was going to be uh, coming in on top of that bill elsewhere, bringing it to 660 million in the end. Now, a lot of people would have balked at the idea of an extra 660 million going into the public sector next year, but that's what was going in. Yeah, my understanding is 290 million was additional uh, their space for those who are outside of the fold if they're to, uh, um, to to come back in, that those measures are there, but we can't do anything for a union outside of Lansdowne Road. And if we do that, all of Lansdowne Road will, um, will unravel. And you take the INTO as an example, we're talking about ASDI strikes now and the impact that that could have on pupils and schools. If we allow a change outside of the uh, criteria of, of Lansdowne Road, well then I would expect the likes of NTO and that to be out um, uh, striking as well. But is, so is it not inevitable that that's now going to happen? Because what no. we have is the ASDI taking a line uh, and the guards are taking a line, although it'll be for very different reasons. Look what happened in a similar sector. You have a Dublin bus drivers went out on strike uh, secured a deal and now we're going to have Bus Air and, and Irish Rail going in all the other public sector unions are looking at Lansdowne Road going hang on a sec we might be better outside of the 10 tier we might get more money for our members and and that's why government can't go outside of uh, Lansdowne Road and and that's why Minister Donoghue has made that very clear are you, are you prepared to dig in on this? I would think it's it's absolutely crucial that the government does because the knock-on implications is if we try to appease one group now to avoid a short-term strike will lead to an awful lot more strikes, in my view. So there, there, there does, can I suggest, though, need to be there needs to be much broader thinking about all of this. So why why have the guards gone on strike? It's not really because of Lansdowne Road. Um, back during the election, I knocked on a guard's door in Wicklow, and he got quite upset and basically told me his wages were now at a level because of the cost of living that he couldn't look after his wife, his pregnant wife, and his his young kid. Um, there's friends of mine who were teachers who are now working in the Middle East because they found themselves in a situation where under no circumstances on a teacher's wage were they ever going to be able to save 40 grand for a deposit for a house. So there's a much bigger issue here. This isn't about Lansdowne well, Is it pay restoration though? Can, no. can we go back to the point at which we can say we can afford what was in 2008 when clearly we couldn't? Well, you see, it's to me, Jonathan, it's not about that. It's about saying... We need a country where people, be they working in the hospitality sector or in the schools or as guards on our street. We need a country where when you when you get your paycheck at the end of the month, you can save enough for a house, you can pay your mortgage and you can lead a decent life. And therefore, a conversation about, well, we want 5% here or you can't have this, you can't have that misses the point. We need to step right back. Now, obviously, these, these short-term Steve, things we, do need to be solved. We don't do that in this country. What we do is we go up to the gate like a bull, bash our heads against it, the gate doesn't open, we fall back. Well, well you're, the you're, other part of that argument, the continuation of that argument is that we need a country which has a proper health service and where people have, have homes um, and, and all those other things that, that people say that they responded to with Fianna Fáil in the election and in, in recent opinion polls where they said this is what they're, they're interested in, um, where proper public services. But when it comes down to it, um, the mismatch is, in, is looking for those sort of extraordinary figures in pay hikes and where you don't, if, if that were acquiesced to, you obviously don't have the money to, to pay for proper but public here, services. But here's the issue, Alison. So, so 
anyone who's coming along saying, I need, I've got a young family and I want to buy a house um, and I need a 20% pay rise. They're not looking for 20% for the sake of 20%. Like Rent has gone up, let's say, in, in Wicklow, where I live, from about 1100 to about 1600 a month over the last Which two years. Motor, insurance, is, motor insurance has gone up six, yeah. seven, eight hundred quid. The cost of travel has gone up. The cost of petrol is going up. It, so we, we have to just step back here and say, what is it we're trying to achieve? Because you, you spoke about the lack of political leadership, be it from government or be it from the doll or be it from wherever. I think what we need is a conversation that says, let's set, let's create an agreed set of principles that says at the end of the month, you have enough money to lead a dignified life. Now, let's do everything we can to push down the costs of living, right? Push down the costs of mortgage, push, push down the costs of houses, push down the costs of transport, insurance, childcare, etc. And let's have a proper conversation about how much money people need to live a decent life in this country. And start from there. We're, we're, we've we've kind of gone off in a tangent, and there is no there is I'd no agree bigger with picture. Here. Stephen says there, but I don't know whether we have the political maturity to <laughs> to but do that. We do. I think the I think the budget this week was a very positive thing, showing that. I mean, there was always the sense previously that if people got to know what was in the budget in advance, you know all hell would break loose. Yeah. This proof that new politics does work yeah. and that we are capable of, of hearing things and next year we'll hear even more because the Finance Oversight Committee will be, you know, more bedded in. Um, but th- listening to, to Stephen's description of this sort of nirvana as opposed to, to, to Ireland, uh, you get the sense it would take an awfully long time for us to to get to that place. Mark, I just think there's a couple of quick points on that. Um, the the ESRI, ESRI's switch um, analysis showed that this was one of the fairest budgets ever and that got that ben- benefit across from those who needed it most. I agree with the point about the cost of living and that's why we're spending £1.2 billion on, on housing. We need the price of ha- cost of housing to come down. We need it to be affordable again to rent uh, and to, and for people to be able to aspire to own their own home, particularly uh, first-time buyers and that. So th- we're, we're addressing some of those issues and at the same time then we do have have to carry out as we slowly on unravel Fempi uh, up to 2019 we okay. do have to work through the measures of Can I just ask a question just to finish up on the teachers because we'll be coming back to it at 11 o'clock the idea that parents are drafted in for what 38 euros a day to, to provide supervision cover in the school you can't be serious about that Rather than talking about what might happen if um, industrial action happens I would much prefer to be sitting here encouraging the unions to go back and talk again So that means you don't, think, you don't think it's a very good idea yourself I, I, I think look we have the front page of the paper saying what the state will do and how it will cut pay we have unions saying all the hard things they'll do and that's what happens when you get into industrial relations disputes everyone's positions harden and I would really like to encourage the ASDI to go back to the table But I can't imagine anything worse than having to go in and supervise three or four hundred young lads who know that the teachers aren't around to draw them in <laughs> if they lose the plot as they inevitably Will. We're going through the papers with uh, Stephen Donnelly, Martin Hayden, both TDs, of course, and Alison O'Connor, like my good self and humble journalist. Um, Alison, uh, there is a very good piece by Francesca Common in the Sunday Business Post. It has the headline, Brute Force, question mark, and it is the Garda whistleblower, Nick Kyo, uh, speaking with Francesca Common, the legal affairs correspondent of the Business Post. And it gives us not the substantive about what the claim that he has made in his protected disclosure is, but of the impact on his life that speaking out has yes, had. Jonathan, it's a really good piece. It, it it puts a human face on this and I suppose a lot of people are probably feeling inundated with all the detail now and finding it hard to, to keep track of, of the allegations and who's involved. But Francesca Kyo met with uh, Common, excuse me, met with, uh, with Nick Kyo 
And, um, you know, there are details in it, such as the fact that he now he lives on his own. Uh, he feels very vulnerable. The fact that he has dogs that now sleep inside the house with them at night. That wouldn't have been what would have happened before. How at one point he, he turned to drink because his, his life was in such turmoil after making the allegations. Now, these relate to allegations that he made in 2009 when he was posted in Athlone. And he said that that um, undercover detectives had induced members of the public to buy cocaine as part of an effort to boost crime detection figures. And he basically says that once he made his made his allegations or did did, did his, his whistleblowing, that management began harassing him immediately after that. And, and the, the line that stands out, and it's in a headline next to the mm. picture, is every day I put on the uniform, I just felt like vomiting. Yeah, it's that it, that is really such a stark um, quote. And I suppose it shows the... Um, it made me think that if a member of my family were a guard or even a friend who said, look, something has happened that I'm really not comfortable with in the force. It's something I witnessed. Would you, in all decency, friendship or love, say to somebody, you should whistleblow on that, shouldn't you? Shouldn't you go and make, uh, you know, uh, make it known? But is that not in stark contrast no, but I mean, and this with what is, Noreen O'Sullivan said during yeah, the week, which is, is that whistleblowers will be protected? And this is the protected. problem. And Conor Brady has a very good column in the in the Sunday Times on that, where he's saying that Noreen O'Sullivan did indeed have a very good performance at the, the Oireachtas Committee this week. She handled things very well. But he's saying she's nearly two years in the, the job now and has yet to show evidence of progress towards the culture change that she was appointed to lead. Now, and I think that's key there. It's the this notion that the the culture, which is obviously which the the interview with with uh, Nikio shows, the culture is as perfa- pervasive as it ever was. It, Conor Brady mentions Judge Mary Ellen Ring, the GSOC tra- chairwoman, very re- in recent weeks criticising the Gardaí for failing to provide information to GSOC in order for them to be able to progress their investigations. That is quite an extraordinary fact. After all that has gone on in the last two two and a half years that 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 opposition if you like to transparency to you know opening up to to the outside to those who are tasked with investigating mm. what is going on that it still remains an immovable force Stephen Donnelly the, the real challenge for Noreen O'Sullivan here apart from her you know ability to perform at mm. an Oireachtas committee is that we are still two years on wading through effectively the same murky waters that we were mm-hmm. when her predecessor appeared before an Oireachtas committee and made comments that many would say ultimately led to his downfall. Yeah, I, I think the the comments of the previous Garda commissioner were objectionable, let's, let's just say. I think they were an extraordinary thing for him to say about um, whistleblowers. Look, I'm very struck by, Alison is using the word very correctly, culture. Yes, you can put in rules and you can put in oversight and you can put in reports. And we've lost track of the number of retired judges who are doing um, investigations into things uh, at a political level at this stage. It takes about five years in the corporate world for a big corporate, be it a bank or a health system or whatever it is, it takes about five years to change the culture in a big corporate uh, environment here or abroad. Uh, so two years isn't enough. So I think the commissioner's big challenge, apart from dealing with you know the, the all of the normal challenges of the job, the security of the state, is she's got a disciplined force, a uniformed force that has would appear to have a very strong culture of not tolerating whistleblowers as per the interview uh, in the in the times today 
And Noreen O'Sullivan has to put a team together at the top and garner sufficient political cover, air cover, to be able to do that. But nobody could do it in two years or three years. It takes time to change culture. Um, but what you have to show, the single, the single most effective or important part of any cultural change programme is role modelling. So you have to see it at the top. So you can do all sorts of things. You can bring in uh, incentives. You can bring in protective disclosures. You can bring in legislation. You can bring in all manner of rules and oversight. But if the rank and file guards don't see a change at the top of the organisation in terms of role modelling, including chief supers and superintendents and so forth, so forth, then nothing changes. So I would say in terms of the cultural change, um, two years isn't enough to make to make any judgment. However, no, but Stephen, it, it is there certainly has I, to I, be indicate. Like you're also looking for indications of cultural change for someone like Judge Mary Ellen Ring. As we know in 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 Irish society, things have to be really bad generally. You know, for something like that to 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 be said by somebody who's heading up an organisation. And, and, and GSOC isn't new. GSOC yeah, has been around for twelve or thirteen years. Is that? Mm. I mean, we all know it's a cliche to say it. The guards do some amazing work. Actually, Noreen O'Sullivan has had considerable success in terms of policing crime figures. All of this is being utterly and totally overshadowed by what's going on here. And you can also argue it's a relatively small number of whistleblowers, but it's the manner in which they've been treated and the length of time that it's taken. And Martin Hayden, the front page of the Sunday Times today, um, brings more pressure to your colleague Frances Fitzgerald because according to this newspaper she was meeting with senior guards in the summer of 2015 and she released the name of two individuals who were whistleblowers and and she shouldn't have done that under the law. Yeah and according to uh, her spokesman in that article as well it says that the Minister at all times dealt with whistleblowers in in line with the Protective Disclosure Act uh, 2014 and, and that's been said uh, previously as well and that's my experience of Minister Frances Fitzgerald is she has taken whistleblower allegations extremely seriously um, and that um, you know we've seen the appointment of Justice Earl O'Neill due to uh, reply now in five weeks time um, and look you couldn't but be moved by Francesca Cummins article um, and if that is the experience of members of the force then if that's what they're enduring then that needs to be addressed as soon as possible and that's why that investigation is But it, does it not give an example and you, you say that the minister's spokesperson said that, that, that she acted within the law but the same article by John Mooney says um, and John Mooney has a good record in writing about this particular topic that the minister's concerns caused the minister's comments caused concern within the department senior guard they were taken aback given the legal sensitivities involved we need to protect these whistleblowers and, and letting their names slip to senior management that doesn't protect them well, obviously, I wasn't in that room, yeah, so no, I, I, I don't know what was said or what wasn't said. I'm just saying my experience of Francis Fitzgerald as a Minister for Justice is, um, as we've seen and, and the previous government bringing in the uh, Protective Disclosures Act in 2014, it, it shows the steps that have been taken uh, to... To, to show the seriousness of this, we we know if if there if these issues as they are being portrayed uh, is the case of a culture within uh, the guard of force, then it absolutely has to be eradicated, and and we will do everything uh, that we can um, to do that. And obviously, there's a focus on, on at the minute on who knew what and and who encouraged what behaviour from senior guardy, and, and that's a very important aspect of it. But we need to get back to a point where um, you know 
our Gardaí uh, root and branch Gardaí across the country have confidence in, in their overall structures and that are don't feel intimidated. Is, is there a problem with the way the Minister for Justice always has to interact with the Garda Commissioner? This suggestion that comes from Sinn Féin in this same article is that the Minister has gotten too close again to the Garda Commissioner. I mean, there's always going to be a working relationship. How do we describe something as too close or not? And, and is it something that's always going to be brought back up with every Justice Minister and every Garda Commissioner for time immemorial? Well, it's, it's it's hard to say. I mean, this, the establishment of the policing authority should help with that. There's no question but that, rightly or wrongly, the perception of the relationship between Alan Shatter as then minister and the commissioner um, was that they had a very close and some would argue unhealthy relationship. Um, I think whilst, in fairness to the, the previous government, they, they have brought in protected disclosures and they, they did bring in the policing authority and there are changes afoot. I think sending a senior civil servant to the Garda Commissioner's house in the middle of the night, something that was unprecedented in the history of the state, to essentially tell him he was sacked, regardless of what the Taoiseach says, oh sure, no, there was no suggestion that there was any pressure being put on him whatsoever. We talk about role modelling at the at the top, at the most senior levels, and if we're going to have transparency and accountability, um, we have to have it politically as well. And so if you, if you signal as a government that that's how you, you're going to get rid of a Garda Commissioner and we have to remember the Garda Commissioner isn't just the head of the guards the Garda Commissioner is the head of security for the state so this is a, a, a very very serious and senior role you know we can't have mm. that kind of thing And, and Alison how is Noreen O'Sullivan going to deal with the upcoming Garda strike amid the backdrop that has been painted this week with the whistleblowers and how they've been treated I mean they are separate issues but they are yeah, but they, I mean ironically I think though that that will that, that threatened industrial action which would be a hugely significant thing if it were to happen for, for the guards to go on strike um, would will act as a protective agent um, for the commissioner because I mean there's no way the government would want to see the commissioner being any more vulnerable um, if her force is, is out on strike so I think for the moment I mean I don't I don't see Noreen O'Sullivan being in any immediate um, danger but there's a, certainly a war of attrition going on and you at, at a certain time reach a tipping point it's not to say it, it will get to that um, but it's it's been it's been moving along incrementally in a particular direction, and uh, Stephen is saying it takes five years. That's fair enough, but okay. I think you have to give indicators along the way, don't you? That there's this progress is happening. You do, of course. Uh, we're with our panel this morning, going through the newspaper: Stephen Donnelly, Martin Hayden, and uh, Alison O'Connor. I mentioned the fact that we had lots of texts from teachers. Let's begin with Teresa. Teresa says, I'm a teacher of 30 years, have always done uh, supervision um, and I always feel it makes the school run more smoothly. I left the ASDI as I didn't agree with their aims. I am now being treated as if I'm a member of that union. I've already had the reduction in salary despite the fact that I've done supervision and continue to do so. New teachers arrive in the school having done a minimum of five years training. So that's a union problem though, isn't it, Alison? If, if, if she's being treated unfairly even so she's left the union. Yeah, well, I suppose it's her problem now that she's no longer in the union. I'm a bit confused, to be honest with you, after all of that. Well, anyway, there's more, if you think you're confused okay. now. Cyril in the west of Ireland, OK, 31 grand is about 590 a week. So they are single and taxed to the hill, so they take home 400. Not that much. I'm a caretaker in a school and I swear I see the inside. I swear I would not do the job. If you only knew the crap they put up with, my blood boils when I listen to ye. Yes, I also support the guard, the and the nurses, says Cyril. 
Jonathan, can I, can I just comment on that? I think that's exactly the point. You see, I don't think this is about turning away from Lansdowne Road, which actually gives you what you're notionally going on strike because you can't have, which is the pay restoration. My, my suspicion is that that text nails it. That just like the guards, the teachers have had years and years and years. Yes, there's been pay cuts like every other public sector worker, but the schools have been disinvested in. Class sizes aren't getting smaller. So it's the same as the guards. Yes, there's an issue with pay, but talk to the guards and they'll tell you they've been under more and more and more pressure. And I imagine the teachers are just feeling a decade of this pressure and disinvestment to, this in the schools. This was described to me by somebody in the medical profession as a deep-seated malaise, which is dismissed, Martin, I know, by a lot of people in government that this is that this exists, but that it's not a single issue. It is something that has built up and built up and built up to the point at which people are effectively talking themselves out of their professions, which is a t- bizarre situation to find yourself in. But you in. could say, Jonathan, that it's, 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 it's symptomatic of the austerity years, what we went through, the fact that we didn't take to the barricades then. You know, so what, where has all that emotional turmoil gone? It's still there. And we haven't had that conversation. I think that the general election was an opportunity to have that conversation where it was lost, where we discussed the years that, you know, that, that had just gone by, how we had um, mismanaged our economy so badly. But where, what lessons did we but want to yeah, learn from where, that? And where do we want to go? Where's you know? the private sector revolution? If the union, the public sector unions are all getting up on high horses now, where's the private sector in all of this? I mean, you're not seeing a similar malaise in that sector, you could argue. Well, maybe you're not, but take school, take the budget that's just come through, right? Um, in four schools, there has been no increase in school capitation grants. Now, inflation is going to be 1.4% next year. That's the that's the forecast, which means that school capitation in terms of real purchasing power is falling by 1.4%. So if you talk to school principals, they'll tell you about trying to raise money to get paint to paint walls. And if you talk to teachers, they'll talk to you about trying to raise money to get bibs for basketball teams. It, there is an issue of pay, don't get me wrong, but I don't think this is what it's about. I, th- I really think it's about the, the conditions that teachers want to teach in the best schools. They want to give kids the best opportunity in life. But if you're working in a system whereby money has just been pulled out and out and mm. out and out, eventually you're going to put point, your hand yeah. up and say, do you yeah. know what, we've had enough. Okay, and, Martin, I, Hayden, I think some in? of this does come down to recognition um, that teachers and guards and others want to know to recognise from the state for the very important work they do uh, which we absolutely do. There is no way you can possibly come through the last five years five, seven years that we've come through where we've had uh, contracting budgets, where we've had to get rid of the deficit The people are fed up talking about at this stage of 18 billion down to get, uh, run balanced budgets. You can't do that without hurting services and we recognise that and that's why now as we with our prudent management of the economy get back to a point where we have a bit more money to spend that we are hiring another 2,400 teachers, uh, another 900 resource teachers teachers, uh, 115 SNAs mm-hmm. and reinstating the likes but of the comes, uh, it, summer works grants for schools, back, which is really important. It comes back to Alison's point. Mick in Cork, who says he was in the ASDI from 1969 to 2013. I hope you're enjoying the retirement, Mick. He says the money is there. Ireland has 26% growth and the second most wealthy per capita of European states. 93,000 for a new TD, some without the junior cert. I don't know, he doesn't name them. Um, accuracy <laughs> at all times, says Mick in Cork. The problem is your government has failed to manage his expectation and others. 26% growth, clearly that was leprechaun economics. It's not going to be there again this year. But but we, we do, we have limited resources to give back out now, but if we give all of them back in pay, uh, then you won't have the money to put into the resources uh, to build around that. And it, it's the same way with all the resources that were given for the Gardaí, improving the ICTs, uh, the, the purchasing of a load of new cars and equipment for them as well, um, that 
enables them to do their job as well as the teachers and the emergency summer works the emergency grants and the summer works grants come back in to address the issues in the school that Stephen has highlighted okay. so it's about a balance for us doing that and as we enrol FMP we can um, give the pay restoration to those that had it lost but also but keep a, money it's for a, it's investment It's a hard resource. sell you have to admit it's a hard Absolutely, sell Absolutely I, I just want to go to the front page of the Sunday Business Post to you because uh, this is one Stephen that you have been banging the drum about vulture funds these section 110s I was always taught in college that laws cannot act retrospectively you can't bring something in uh, to catch someone out for something they did previously but it would appear that these section 110 companies that uh, have made an awful lot of money and not paid much tax uh, might get a bit of a letter from the revenue well, I think they I think they are going to get a letter from the revenue. And I have to say, the government has acted quickly. I raised this probably only about four months ago in the Dáil. There's been some very good journalistic work on it as well um, by the likes of uh, Mark Paul and Joe Brennan and Daryl MacDonald and Jack Horgan-Jones and others. And um, the potential quantum here is huge, Jonathan. So we're talking about 40 billion euro in assets that have been sold by NAMA, by IBRC, by the banks they're yielding about 9% a year just on interest. So that's about 3.6 billion a year in taxable profits. You tax that, you get in a lot of money. So you're potentially talking north of 500 million, maybe north of a billion a year. So we want to talk about making the, the, the situation for the guards better and not just in pay but in smaller classes and, and, and more mm. and all that stuff So it can be done retrospectively even though these guys have said that yeah. we are a, a section 110 so therefore we are immune to paying tax Yeah sure the, the, the retrospective point is really important which is these companies came into Ireland and bought all of these assets from about 2012 onwards so it's very recent stuff they self-declared themselves as these things called section 110s as they were entitled to do well as they were entitled to do but the state doesn't have to agree with them so it would be like anyone who's listening mm. waking up in the morning and saying do you know what I'm declaring I don't I, there's a law over here that I'm going to apply and I don't owe tax anymore and then saying two years later to the revenue well you can't tax me on, on that because I had self-declared myself as tax exempt so it looks like like the government is standing up to this retrospective taxation in terms of capital gains is fine like if Michael Noonan had walked in on Tuesday and said right capital gains is now 80% well then that 80% is owed not just on gains from the day he says it it's, okay. it's owed on gains as they're realised I must say Stephen I think Stephen deserves great credit for this but I might ask him a bit meanly having saved the, saved the state so much money does he, would he, does he feel confident in taking his own salary rise now? <laughs> <laughs> Look if I've, if, if I've helped save the, sa- save the state 20 billion quid then uh, yeah, then, yeah. Then, then yes I do Go feel for uh, yes. Go for now, now, okay. ju- Just for the purposes of clarity for Mick and Cork you both did the junior cert now did you lads? Just to clarify yeah, okay. No we didn't I'm so old I did intercert We leave it there our panel today was Martin Hayden and Stephen Donnelly and Alison O'Connor Thank you very much for joining us.